Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Last year, the Journal of Social Computing issued a special issue on the subject of technology ethics in action. The special issue was the product of the Ethical Tech Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. The ideas in the special issue span a range of critical and interdisciplinary perspectives, with essay titles ranging from Creating Technology Worthy of the Human Spirit to Connecting Race to Ethics Related to Technology to The Promise and Limits of Lawfulness, Inequality, Law, and the Tech Lash. For anyone interested in the subject of technology and ethics, whether you are teaching it, working on applications in industry, or a student eager to learn, I recommend downloading the special issue. There's a link to it at Tech Policy Press, posted with this podcast. To learn more about some of the key ideas, I spoke to its editor, Ben Green. Ben is a postdoctoral scholar in the Michigan Society of Fellows and an assistant professor at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. His Harvard PhD is in Applied Mathematics, with a secondary field in science, technology, and society. He studies the social and political impacts of government algorithms, focusing on algorithmic fairness, smart cities, and the criminal justice system. In 2019, MIT Press published his book, The Smart Enough City, Putting Technology in Its Place to Reclaim Our Urban Future. Ben is also an affiliate at the Bertman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. Here's Ben. I'm Ben Green. I'm a postdoctoral scholar in the Michigan Society of Fellows and an assistant professor in the Ford School of Public Policy at Michigan. And you are the editor of this special issue of the Journal of Social Computing, which is called Technology Ethics in Action, Critical and Interdisciplinary Perspectives. Uh, What led the Journal of Social Computing to hand over the editorial keys to you for this issue? Yeah, so this this issue really came out, uh, it really emerged from several years, uh, a a several year long process, even dating back to before we were involved with the Journal of Social Computing. So everyone who was involved in this was part of a, what was described as the ethical tech working group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. And starting around 2018, there was a large group of us, which includes other folks even beyond the contributors to this issue, who were just having early stage conversations, trying to come together across fields and think about what is this nascent energy around technology ethics? What does it actually mean in practice? And what are the limits of these efforts? What is our skepticism around the ethical language that many different actors are adopting? And so from that, we decided that one exciting output to create would be this this issue that really brings this combination of critical and interdisciplinary perspectives together, rather than trying to say, we're going to create a single manifesto from these 10 or 20 different people. We wanted to bring that sense of different perspectives and different backgrounds to life with uh, with a special issue. So really it was a several year process of developing and curating articles and developing ideas and even seeing how our ideas shifted over the last two or three years in terms of the different developments around tech ethics, since it's such a rapidly evolving area. Yeah, so we really, we put it together and then we approached the Journal of Social Computing. We found a really great partnership with them as a journal that was looking for this type of work and was really excited about the particular style and approach that we were taking. 
There are some great uh, essays in here with titles like Creating Technology Worthy of the Human Spirit, uh, A Lightweight Design Method for Socio-Technical Inquiry, Algorithmic Silence, A Call to Decomputerize, uh, just a real range. Uh, Before we get into your essay, you've got a couple in here. Uh, Can you just give me a little bit of an overview of what are some of the topics that people have taken on? It's a broad range, and you know the 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 issue is loosely grouped into two different sub issues. The first is really looking at uh, sort of tech ethics itself. What's the evolution of this area? What are the different limits of technology ethics as it's come about? So we have uh, Jasmine McNeely's article, for instance, is looking at the different language that companies and other actors use and how language such as users and human-centered can sound ethical, but ultimately obscure some of the deeper political questions that lie under the surface of the of that type of language and of the products. Um, we have other articles like Lily Who's uh, in that same part of the issue looking at sort of the power relations and who gets to shape technology ethics and how technology ethics might be in some ways falling into similar traps as human rights did during the 20th century of presenting a certain backstop against certain harms and a certain language for ethical discourse, but ultimately failing to confront uh, some of the deeper issues of of power and the trajectory of the political economy. Um, And then the second half is taking a, a broader perspective, looking at different types of approaches for regulation or design Uh, that could potentially help to sort of move beyond the existing frame of technology ethics and create more just and equitable forms of technology. Luke Stark's article, for instance, about a lightweight design method proposes a sort of hour-long workshop that different actors could bring designers and policymakers and social scientists together to think in a somewhat lightweight at-speed method about how to incorporate values into design Aidan von Nopen talks about the role of spirituality and spiritual leaders as an important frame of reference for ethics and how some technology companies have attempted to bring in that type of perspective into their conversations about design and ethics. And then Joanne Chung has an article looking at the uh, political economy of social media and sort of thinking about the relationship between the focus on the design aspects of social media, things around Uh, the algorithm and the like button and so on, but then also the broader backdrop of the political economy and the financial incentives that uh, social media companies are facing. And she draws some really interesting parallels to urban planning and urban design in thinking about similar uh, structural issues and places that we could look there for potential remedies. Um, So that's just maybe half of the articles and the issues. But as you can see, there's just a wide range of different technology topics focused on and then different disciplinary perspectives that are brought from the different authors uh, into the conversation. And you place all of this uh, in context in an introductory essay where you talk about a a crisis of conscience in in digital technology. Um, Can you just sort of explain the landscape into which you introduce this special issue as you see it? You know, it's a tough job for the intro for such a wide ranging set of articles. But um, what I tried to do was to, you know, take the intro as something where a reader could come relatively unfamiliar to technology ethics and sort of what are the developments and what is this particular discourse and get up to speed on what's been going on 
and what are the limits, what are the critiques of, of technology ethics that have been raised. So, so first I run through some of the different areas around algorithmic bias and privacy and so on that have led to this crisis of conscience among many engineers and these wider calls for ethics in among regulators and across the tech industry, among academia and so on. But then I look at as these forms of technology ethics have been taken up, what are some of the issues that have been raised? There are several that have come up around often technology ethics interventions are highly focused on individual design decisions of engineers, not really targeting some of the the broader factors that are shaping what technology companies or governments are doing. So it's this very individual design-oriented practice often. And it, it often ends up being subsumed into technology company incentives and processes. So you have companies like Google and Facebook and really everyone who has these new ethics engineers and ethics researchers and ethics teams. But what ends up seeming to happen is that those those individuals and those groups and those processes are really about being incorporated into the wider business practices. And I think there's a really fundamental limit on how much change those organizations or those groups have been able to create within organizations. So there's sort of this conflict of what happens when the ethics comes in conflict with the business models. And so you have this wider language around uh, ethics washing and the idea that ethics is sort of a way of providing a, a superficial gloss over larger systemic unjust practices. In some ways, uh, we see we see essentially even these companies that have established big uh, kind of corporate ethics entities like responsible AI teams or the rest, it all just gets essentially uh, subjugated to the business model. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think there's a variety of research and news stories talking about that. Um, And we can see, I mean, there are the high profile cases, such as what happened with Google and Timnit Gebru. And you can see, you know, essentially she was pushing strongly for more critical research and more changes in products and research to really be mindful of the social impacts. And that led to really significant conflicts between, you know, her charge as the co-lead of the ethics team and what Google was actually interested in doing and knowing about and responding to. Um, And so I think that's just one case study of this wider issue of how the companies are interested in what they can do to be ethical that is relatively easy, but they're not interested in changing, you know, their ultimate business models and their plans for the next five years in order to really respond to what a rigorous view of ethics or justice or equity would require of them. So you lay out what you call a socio-technical approach to technology, and you you say central to adopting that or to uh, pursuing that is the rejection of, of technological determinism. What do you see as that argument? You know, the way I try to lay out the piece at the end is not with a super prescriptive response that says, here's the frame of ethics that we should follow, or here's the alternative or something like that, but really about how can we pursue a rigorous practice of engaging with these efforts around ethics, both recognizing what ethics can provide as a philosophical and normative discipline, uh, but also being mindful of the limits of what ethics ends up being turned into or applied as practice. And I think it's really important to hold both of those things at the same time, right? We should be mindful of all of these limits of technology ethics as it's been applied in academia and in the industry, 
But that doesn't mean we should reject ethics entirely in terms of what it can provide as a mode of reasoning. The idea around determinism and, and as part of this larger socio-technical frame is sort of to take what we know about how to think about technology in context as a tool and apply that to thinking about technology ethics in its context. So in the same way that we would want, you know, that STS and other scholars have talked about being rejecting technological determinism, the idea that technology acts as this autonomous force that drives society and changes things for the better on its own, we should have a similar attitude toward technology ethics and think of tech ethics not as something that can simply be adopted if, if you adopt some principles, you're just in a deterministic way going to have an ethical organization or ethical technology. But instead, what this tool of technology ethics actually does in practice depends on the context in which it's embedded and the incentives of the different actors who are involved in shaping it. Um, and so that's sort of the idea of what we want to of what I propose as a way of thinking about what technology ethics looks like in practice and how we can both try to pursue more ethical and just technologies while being critical, uh, bringing a critical lens into what often happens in practice. So the cynic in me might read this essay uh, and some of the others and say, well, you know, there's no chance uh, we're ever going to overlay uh, any sufficient ethical framework on corporate entities that are uh, designed in the mode of uh, 21st century shareholder capitalism, and they need to grow and they need to provide a return. Don't we need a major you know, regulation? Don't we need government entities and apparatus that can require this type of ethic? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that that's often where the, you know, the ethics discussions are often a way among technologists and companies of preempting those sorts of conversations, right? They're essentially often act as calls for self-regulation, trying to turn these issues that you've just described into technology problems that are really best served by more ethical engineering or into process problems that can be better, that can just be solved through various types of, you know, internal organizational audits and checklists and so on. And so I think, you know, we should be incredibly mindful of that exact type of dynamic around the language of ethics. Um, but again, we should, ethics as a, a wider philosophical lens is incredibly important for thinking about what are the underlying problems and how can we think about what regulation should ultimately look like. If we eventually can go down that road, what does it look like? And, you know, one of the articles in the collection by Salome Filyun actually sort of thinks about the relationship between ethics and law and blurs the boundaries a little bit by pointing out how, in some cases, you know, the law response to the failures or limits of ethics can themselves be co-opted by technology companies. And there are interesting examples now as technology companies sort of see that the increasing move and the increasing energy towards regulation they've ended up uh, supporting regulation, but supporting very particular types of regulation that are relatively superficial. And so in the article, Salome talks about, you know, Microsoft supporting a facial recognition bill in Washington state that is a form of regulation, but was much less stringent and restrictive than what many of the civil rights groups and other advocates would have wanted. And so, you know, we shouldn't, we should also be mindful of, you know, not just assume that any form of regulation is necessarily uncoopted in the way that the ethics response 
could be co-opted. So there's a larger issue around public participation and power and making sure that technology companies can't simply uh, run the show in either of these domains. So you have a particular essay here that, you know, as you mentioned, you the issue covers various technologies, but you focus in particular on data science and it's called Data Science as Political Action, Grounding Data Science in a Politics of Justice. Give us the basics of this one. Yeah, so another another contribution for me in the collection and is really in some ways a response of my own thinking around how can we recognize, you know, how how does data science actually need to change? What are the recognitions that data scientists need to have about their own practice. So you have this great uh, phrase in the piece where you say, quote, in other words, we must recognize data science as a form of political action. Data scientists must recognize themselves as political actors engaged in normative constructions of society. In turn, data scientists must evaluate their efforts according to the downstream impacts on people's lives. Yeah, and I think that that is a really nice you know, maybe the cent, yeah, really the central sentence of this argument and is responding to a trend that, that I was seeing of many data scientists working on public oriented problems, working on uh, algorithms that would inform uh, pretrial decision making or welfare or other uh, issues, often out of a genuine desire to do good. You know, we have efforts such as data science for social good. And I think that what I really wanted to impress upon individuals doing this type of work was to recognize that the work was political and they are political actors. That doesn't necessarily mean that the work is bad or that they should you know, disappear and not do any of this work, but it's to say, here's a particular type of orientation that you need to bring to your work and understanding the impacts that you're having. And what I, the main sort of thrust of the, the article, particularly in the first half, is actually a sort of discussion with a, a skeptic who hears those arguments and responds. And all the, the three different counterclaims that are made uh, are all real arguments that I've heard from engineers when they're confronted with this, right? They'll say, oh, well, I'm just, a, I'm just an engineer. I'm, it's not my job to make political decisions, uh, arguments like that. And so what I try to do in the piece is to directly respond to those and say, okay, I hear that response. I understand why you might think that. And here's an argument that draws on some literature and examples to help articulate not just why that way of thinking doesn't, doesn't fully work from a sort of academic perspective, but also what the downstream harms can be of approaching your work while following those views of what you're doing. You know, I teach, I have students um, who I try to help to understand um, how whatever role they might take in a technology firm, whether it's a, in a government context or a civil society context or in a corporate context, you know, there is that deeper uh, layer of, of ways in which their work will interact with society. I love this uh, section here where you, you take on this, this basic argument that you hear so often. I am just an engineer. I think is really the first place that engineers start. And, you know, it's very much inculcated into the culture of science and engineering. And it's something that is generally shared and taught through classes and through internships and through the wider discourse of data science and other types of engineering and computer science practice. 
And so there, you know, it's really just being able to, I think it's essential to really point out just how different types of tools are impacting society and that, you know, really breaking through the idea that, well, I'm just developing something and anyone can use this tool. The tool is neutral, but the uses of it are political and I have no control over the uses. Really, both of those things are not true, right? Different types of applications of algorithms assume a certain type of society. They make assumptions about what types of outcomes would be good or bad and so on. But also, I think uh, there's, you know, that sense of remove of having no idea how a tool could be used also doesn't quite work. Many times engineers are developing algorithms in direct collaboration with a company or with a government agency. And so the application is quite clear and they have to choose whether or not that's an application that they support or whether there's a data set that they're using from a law enforcement agency that they think is a reliable data set and so on. So that even the so what I do in, the, in this part of the article is bring in some of the literature on objectivity and standpoint theory and really try to highlight how different the perspectives of engineers do reflect ultimately uh, different political views and different political standpoints. And again, that's not to say that they're necessarily wrong. To be political is not to be wrong or bad, but it is to be affecting the world in a way that is quite different from how most data scientists think of themselves as affecting the world. And some of these arguments, I mean, I know you've written this in the context of data science, but some of these arguments, they're exactly the ones that we hear coming out of the mouths of the most senior technology executives in this country. And I think there are some interesting parallels to be drawn there. I mean, one of the sort of consistent stories of Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, and Zainab Tufeki has an incredible article about this from a few years ago, is about all the times that Mark Zuckerberg was said, oh, I, this bad thing happened. I'm so sorry about it. I just didn't foresee this happening. How could I have foreseen that Facebook would lead to this negative use or this you know, harmful story? And so it's this perfect example of what I was just talking about around you know, the ability to say, well, I couldn't have predicted this outcome. I'm just an engineer or I, we're just creating technology. We don't decide how users or other companies will interact with that technology is a way of distancing oneself from the harms that arise. And I think is ultimately a, an example of how the field relies on a methodology that is very narrow. Because if you're developing technology to improve society, then how is an evaluation of how people are going to use or could use that technology not a central part of actually evaluating and developing this system. Um, and so, you know, thinking about downstream impacts should almost has to be a central component of doing rigorous engineering work of any sort, because the whole point of engineering is that you're having some beneficial downstream impact on society. Um, and so again, so I think that, you know, these arguments from technology companies certainly come up. And I think that being able for them, being able to tap into this wider culture of engineers as neutral and removed from downstream impacts and political processes uh, gives them cover for trying to avoid responsibility. So you lay out a kind of roadmap, a set of stages for data scientists to ground their practice in politics, uh, which you've you know laid out the reason why that's necessary. Can you just quickly take us through the top line points on that, the various stages? 
Yeah. And my thinking around the stages is to try to think about what is a realistic trajectory of how individual data scientists might move from a place where they're making the types of arguments described in the first half of the article to the ability to see themselves as political and to think about how to shape and alter their work in light of that fact. And in some sense, this is, you know, in part modeled on my own experience and the experience of others that I've observed following through this type of process. Um, So I think, you know, so I talk about four different stages. The first is pretty high level, just around the idea of interest, where I think it really starts with data scientists being interested in having some positive social impact in the world. I mean, many, there's lots of data science work that is quite theoretical and technical and sort of removed from uh, wanting to do social good. So I think these efforts, you know, in the article, I both critique many efforts to achieve uh, data science for social good and sort of the, uh, yeah, I critique the limited idea of what social good is and how this work can improve society. But I do think it creates a useful launching pad and stepping stone for data scientists to start thinking about uh, how can we improve society. And then I think from there, there's really a stage of reflection and where, where data scientists, I think, can be prompted to come into contact and sort of grapple with the questions about their work that are not purely technical questions and thinking about, you know, the, the politics of the institutions that they're engaging with and uh, potential applications of their work and so on. Um, and I think ideally that process of reflection should be baked into uh, renewed or more robust versions of data science for social good and so on, where you know education and training to help data scientists work towards beneficial social impact should be integrated with critical literature and questions around, you know, what are the impacts of these tools and how can you reason about having a socially beneficial impact, not as some necessary thing that will happen if you develop this algorithm, but as something that's incredibly tenuous and uncertain and requires an incredible amount of work to make happen. So then from there, I talk about two other stages, sort of thinking about first being more around applications where data scientists can think about different types of applications for their work that often are just more mindful of you know, what are the institutions that maybe are challenging power and working towards equity rather than sort of defaulting towards partnering with technology companies or with law enforcement agencies and so on. Um, and then finally, thinking about broader modes of practice around participatory data science and methods that are better able to account for downstream impacts uh, and so on. Uh, and so the last category is a little uh, broader and sort of thinking more speculatively about how the field can change, not just in terms of data, you know, some specific practices, but really how does an awareness of data science as being political actually alter the day-to-day nature of what this work entails in a fundamental sense. And so I think that's a a longer term vision and something that I am excited to work towards. And so I laid out a number of different ideas for that, but I think that's a long-term path of, of trial and development. What's next, Ben? for you and for the authors of this? Where do you think this will go? Yeah, I mean, so we're really hoping for the for the collection to be something that is seated into these conversations and can help to provide a, a real touchstone around people's 
growing awareness of the limits and frustration around the limits of technology ethics. I think that that's certainly something that that has been growing. We're not the only ones to make uh, many of these many of these points and claims, and we hope that it can be something that really uh, shapes some of the the future research and education around this. That you know, I think that many of the articles work quite well as components or readings in both undergrad and graduate syllabi. Um, and one of the things we really looked for when we were trying to figure out where to publish this collection was a place where the whole art, the whole issue, could be published open access. And so, one of the great things about the Journal of Social Computing was that they published this entire issue open access. So there's no paywall. No institutional logins required. Anyone can read it. And so that's really important to us in terms of thinking about the broader public conversation that we want to be able to have around bringing these different lenses into critical work on tech ethics. Um, and much of my own work is, is sort of pushing beyond the article I make about data science and pol- as political action. And the, that last those last couple of stages I was describing and thinking about you know, I can sort of lay out this broad vision. How can I describe what this fundamental change in data science and algorithmic practice would look like? How, what are the practices that would change? And how would this alter everything about how we apply data science in different domains? Particularly for me, I have an interest in uh, policy domains and government uses of algorithms, but how does it, how does this wider lens affect everything from how we integrate algorithms into decision-making to how do we define our conceptions of algorithmic fairness uh, and so on. And so I think that there's a lot of work to be done to really take uh, that argument as well as many of the other arguments from from the special issue and think about how do we push this into practice? How do we actually make change in the particular domain that each author is talking about? Ben Green, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Justin. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. Thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.